0: Greetings and welcome to New Books in History. I am your host, Monica Black, and today I have the great pleasure to speak with Luke Harlow, who is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Professor Harlow is a historian of the American Civil War era, and he has just written a highly engaging and I would say also elegantly argued book called Religion, Race, and the Making of Confederate Kentucky, 1830 to 1880, Uh, The book has just appeared with Cambridge University Press in their series Studies on the American South. Religion, race, and the making of Confederate Kentucky deals with the role of religion, and more specifically evangelical Protestant Christianity and theology, in the struggle over slavery and abolition in the United States. The book makes an impressive case that we cannot really understand that struggle over slavery and abolition or the war that grew out of that struggle without fully appreciating the political, cultural, and intellectual history of conservative evangelical theology. And it is a book that, among many other things, reminded me uh, of the absolute centrality of geography to the study of history, which is something that I think historians maybe sometimes we... We forget that a little bit, and I think it's an important point, certainly something that I took away from reading this, this very, very engaging and, and highly interesting book. So on that note, let's get right to the discussion. Hi, Luke. How are you doing today? Hi, Monica. Thanks for having me. Uh, very delighted to have you today and very delighted to have you talking about this very fascinating book. So um, maybe we'll, we'll get started by uh, me asking you, please, to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself something about your background or your education, something you think uh, might give people a fuller sense of of this book and uh, and its importance to your to your work more generally? Sure.
1: Well, um, I, I came to this project uh, in a variety of, of different kinds of ways, but as you mentioned, uh, I am, among other things, a historian of the American Civil War era. This is uh, primarily what I teach at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And uh, I've for a long time. I mean, going way back, probably even before I was a college student, uh, was really interested, like a lot of Americans, I suppose, in the American Civil War, where it came from, what the causes of it were, what the results of it were, what the consequences of it were. And uh, I found myself, I'm, I'm originally from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And in Bethlehem, there's a kind of inescapable sense of the local past. Uh, It's a town founded in the 1740s by Moravians. It's uh, very close to Philadelphia, which has a lot of American history in it, of course, and it's not that far from Gettysburg. And so kind of growing up, I found myself in all these places. Uh, But I also have uh, a lot of family from Kentucky and wound up going to Western Kentucky University for college. And it was there that I encountered some fantastic professors who were... um, really good students of the history of the American South, uh, really good sort of historians of American religion. And I guess you could say sort of <laughs> lit a fire of intellectual passion or something like that. Uh, maybe that's a little over the top, but uh, you know, that, that, that's, <laughs> Not that's 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 where this kind of all had its origins. I was really interested in questions uh, as a college student at Western Kentucky University, uh, questions about, um, The relationship between slavery, religion, uh, the big questions in the American Civil War era, and uh, sort of found my way to graduate school to explore those questions. And I guess you could say this book is, because it was originally a doctoral dissertation that I wrote at Rice University, was sort of the logical output of, you know, questions that have been formulating for well over a decade, for sure
0: yeah that's amazing that's really it, it's very interesting to hear people talk about their their formative experiences i think and especially um when someone comes to a project uh like this one that begins actually um, begins being formed early in a person's life I always find that really interesting and I'm sure other people do too let's 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 talk a little bit more about the specifics of how you came let's say to the arguments of this book or or what let's 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 hear a little bit about how the idea of this particular book gelled for you? When, when, when did you start having thoughts that you wanted to write about Kentucky, that you wanted to write about these particular sets of themes that you tackle in this book?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, despite my sort of undergraduate studies uh, in Kentucky, I had very little interest in Kentucky as a subject of historical study. In fact, some of my undergraduate professors uh, like to make a point when I see them that despite having courses called Kentucky history on the books, I refused to take them and never, (laughs) and never actually cared that much about it as an undergraduate, which is really my loss because, um, I went off to, uh, my first stop in graduate school was with a, a very distinguished historian of American religion named Mark Knoll. Um, and I wrote a master's thesis under his direction at Wheaton college. And, um, Mark at that time was working on a book, I was his research assistant, he was working on a book that uh, was published in 2006 by the University of North Carolina Press called uh, The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. And At that time, uh, I was sort of trying to figure out uh, where the struggle over slavery was happening uh, in religious terms, where were things really kind of hot and vibrant. And the, the story, that the kind of layman's story that you have an anti-slavery North and a pro-slavery South, historians have done a lot to challenge that in all kinds of ways. But when it comes to religion, we know that, uh, for example, the three biggest Protestant denominations in the United States, the Methodists, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, all split on the slavery question in the 1830s and 1840s. Mm-hmm. Um, my own instinct was to sort of say, like, well, were there anyone, was there anyone in the South, was there anyone in slave-holding sort of states who challenged pro-slavery orthodoxy? Surely there were some people who thought this was problematic in one way or another. And so the genesis of this particular project uh, was trying to answer that question. Where were there people who didn't agree that slavery was ordained by God, and for what reasons? And so uh, I started thinking as a master's sort of thesis student about how to do that. And, and, and at the MA thesis level, it was a fairly workmanlike. It's not a, I mean, it was it was a master's thesis. I'm you know
0: whatever. Uh, <laughs> I think a lot it, of us know what that means. Yeah, yeah. I had I had sort
1: of three individuals who represented three different um, points on the kind of anti-slavery spectrum. One of which, who is all three of them, are now in this book in very different form, but. One of which was named John G. Fee. He's the founder of Berea College in Kentucky, which which exists to this day. He's very much a radical uh, evangelical abolitionist, uh, one of which was named James M. Pendleton. He's a conservative sort of Southern Baptist anti-slavery voice who finds himself... Um, having to leave Kentucky uh, during the Civil War, uh, fearing – or leave, he's in Tennessee at that time, but he's fearing for his safety, he finds himself in the North for almost the rest of his life. And then uh, as kind of polemical, um, uh, yeah, kind of <laughs> vociferous polemicist, let's say, Presbyterian by the name of Robert J. Breckenridge, who is also a kind of conservative, anti-slavery uh, individual of a variety uh, – uh, of, of a sort of another variety. And so and so the, the result was I wrote this master's thesis saying, well, here in this slave state are people who challenge slavery. They do it in ways that are complicated, that in the 20th, 21st century, we may not sort of agree with their racial politics. We may find that really discomforting. I mean, in fact, in the case of Pendleton and Breckenridge, their arguments are really whites first emancipationist arguments. Um, so uh, – th- that that was that was sort of that was sort of where it started I had to sort of leave Kentucky as an undergraduate to see the uh, usefulness of Kentucky as a place for historical inquiry as I kinda continued the project forward I realized that almost every position you can imagine on the uh, pro or anti-slavery spectrum came to be articulated in Kentucky in one form or another and so it kind of proved itself to be this really interesting uh, historical laboratory where you see people kind of intellectually duking it out in some cases Physically, violently duking it out over uh, the question of religion and slavery, all the way up through, uh, as the book shows, the Reconstruction era.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And the and and so on that note, actually, I would ask you to, if you would come back to something that I mentioned at the outset and when I was sort of just giving my little uh, brief inter- introduction to the the main themes of your book, um, I mentioned that one of the things that was most striking for me. And I'm a non-specialist. I'll point that out for anyone who's listening, um, who might be interested. Uh, I'm not a specialist in, in, in the history of the United States. But one of the things that struck me most as a historian, generally, was the role of geography in this book, which I think, for for a variety of reasons that you illuminate here, you know, that you illuminate over the course of the book, uh, is a really striking fact of what you know. In other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is that. What you were just describing about your master's thesis and finding very, a very great diversity of voices on the subject of slavery and abolition um, has a lot to do, I think, at least that's my reading of your book, with the fact of Kentucky. So I wonder if you could talk about that. Talk about Kentucky's role in this period of time from 1830 to 1880 in American history a little bit and explain why Kentucky is such an important um, locus, a kind of key to your study.
1: Sure. Yeah. So Kentucky, uh, one of the things to to note right away about Kentucky in this period is that it has the longest of any free state, slave state border, uh, which is in the form of the Ohio River. The Ohio River separates Kentucky uh, from Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. It's 664 miles long of border. And uh, Kentucky is a slave state, but right across the river are free states. And uh, because the Ohio River is one of the most important, um, you know, transportation vehicles, really, transportation routes uh, in this period, uh, a lot of the kind of development of the, the sort of population centers of Kentucky are right on the river. Uh, right across from Cincinnati in the north is Covington and Newport, Kentucky, uh, of course, Louisville, Kentucky's bi- biggest city, uh, right across from Indiana. And then you kind of go all the way, uh, down around, uh, to where the Ohio river lets out, uh, to the Mississippi. Um, but, but that, that sort of long border, uh, makes it possible for there to be lots of contact, uh, with, um, anti-slavery voices of a variety of kinds and Cincinnati for most of the period described in my book, is no hotbed of abolitionism, but Cincinnati is, you know, tolerant. It, it is more free. It is a free soil uh, place, and they will have by the 1850s regular abolition conventions. They have abolitionist activity, uh, really throughout the period in this book. They have a sizable uh, free black community, um, which is really important. A lot of uh, whom are instrumental in um, aiding. Uh, enslaved Kentuckians and and their hopes for escape um, and so forth. And so you see, um, you know, at the near remove uh, of Kentucky's border, um, lots of possibilities for what the end of slavery might mean. And I would say that for many conservatives within Kentucky's borders, uh, they're frightened by this. Kentucky itself, uh, because it is as far north as it is, is not um, what we think of in kind of traditional terms of, you know, the slave holding South. It's not You know, big cotton plantations or something like this. You can't really grow cotton in Kentucky. Uh, What they do have is a lot of tobacco, uh, hemp, uh, various other kinds, grains, this kind of thing. And according to the 1860 census, Kentucky is actually third among all states in slaveholders. Um, Now, if they don't have, they do have some plantations, but largely, what we're talking about is a dispersed middle class of slaveholders, um, using a kind of not totally efficient but useful definition of uh, what it means to be sort of a you know larger plan, a larger slaveholder. Uh, you know, you might have five or something like that, five slaves. Uh, Kentucky has most of its slaveholders have less than five slaves. Uh, eighteen sixty about twenty percent of the Kentucky population. Is enslaved, so we're not talking about a huge, uh, slave population like you'd find, um, in, in states deeper south that might have black majorities or something like this in certain parts of the state. But nonetheless, what we see is a widespread, uh, commitment to slaveholding in Kentucky. Right across the river from free soil states. And so, uh, sl- Kentucky is very much, as many historians have pointed out, a border state. I mean that's kind of obvious, but what that border means is as time goes on, it's constantly defining itself uh, as the kind of bulwark that holds back the tide of the abolitionist north or the increasingly anti-slavery north. Uh, Kentucky over time will come to define itself um, in more and more strident terms as you get sort of even beyond the war. So, Geography plays, plays a really significant role in these kinds of things, um, you know, uh, connected to free soil, connected uh, to the Deep South, and it's sort of right there in the middle.
0: Yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, thanks. For, that's it's, it's great to have that laid out for us a little bit. Now, let's, let's get to the question of religion. Um, I mean, one of the things that's very striking about this book is just, I mean, we assume, I, I suppose, it, 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 in a certain way, it's... Um, It's uh, almost commonsensical that this was a profoundly religious period in American history, but just how profoundly religious um, was something that struck me, actually, uh, in in reading the book. And you have uh, people, lots of different kinds of people claiming religious motives for various sorts of uh, political ideas, political approaches. And so maybe you can talk for a few minutes about the role that religion and especially evangelical Protestantism played in shaping um, night, the, in shaping these the debates that became increasingly urgent, it seems, about slavery in the United States over the decades that that you look at, especially especially in the early decades. But um, maybe you can start with those decades, and then we'll eventually, in our conversation, <laughs> we'll get to the to the later periods too. Sure, I mean. It, it,
1: for, for 19th century American um, sort of cultural, political, intellectual historians, um, it's been well established by a long sort of historiography of how important religion is to just about everything in American history uh, in the 19th century. Um, the great sort of fantastic historian of religion, American politics uh, in this period, Richard Carwardine, has called evangelical Protestantism uh america's sort of most uh, profound most powerful uh subculture mm-hmm. and and so the reason Carwardine sort of justifies that claim is he says that you know just by a basic accounting uh, that he does of denominations and actors and everything else he estimates that something like 40 percent of all americans were connected to evangelicalism in one way or another um One of the things that's very interesting about what Cardine shows there is that that's sort of a national standard, and lots of historians have followed his lead. But when you go south of the Mason-Dixon line and the Ohio River, those numbers get even more uh, enhanced. And so in Kentucky, in the place I study, uh, those numbers are more like 60 to 70% of the population is connected to evangelicalism in one way or another. Now, that's a hard number to get at. We don't really have good ways of doing it, partially because it's very hard to become a member of a church at this time. Mm -hmm. But lots of people are going to church, and lots of people are connected to church. And undeniably, churches are the most prominent voluntary organizations in American history. History at this time. I mean, these are the these are the great uh, kind of associations in that way. Uh, In in the the place I study in Kentucky, um, even using the most restrictive uh, numbers available, which would be membership numbers, by the time you get to the end of my book, something like one out of every ten Kentuckians is formally the member of a Baptist church. Hmm. Um, The Methodists have also pretty significant uh, rates of adherence, and so do the Presbyterian. And that's like formal. You know, people sign their name, join, uh, are, are there regularly. There's all kinds of other people who are attending. So one of the things that, uh, you, that that's really significant about religion in this period is, is it, you know, it's, it's making claims on people's lives. It's sort of asking people to uh, have a series of values that they assent to. And so one of the things that I thought was really important to get at was what are those values? What is it that these sort of individuals, these churches, ministers, uh, my, you know, my sources come from all kinds of different things, but a lot of uh, some of my best sources are in formal denominational records, newspapers, these kinds of things, where they're saying very clearly this is the way we think the Christian God has called human societies to order themselves, to construct themselves. Uh, to live in the world. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this is what it looks like to be a good Christian. And for most of the white denominations, uh, what they're saying is to be a good Christian, um, you don't have to hold slaves. But to be a good Christian, you can't say that slaveholding is wrong because it's ordained by God in the Bible. And it's uh, all over the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the Mosaic Code. Uh, In the New Testament, the writings of the Apostle Paul seem to offer uh, a different reading maybe on what slavery should be, but nonetheless a positive sanction for slavery. And the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth uh, in the Gospels seem to never challenge slavery. And they're they're very happy to point out that uh, Jesus will condemn adultery. Jesus will condemn uh, divorce. Jesus doesn't say a word about slaveholding. And he, of course, is living in a... uh, Slaveholding uh, time and society himself, and so uh, this is sort of the way that you know religion relates to the slavery question in Kentucky in the period.
0: Yeah, then maybe next you could tell us a little bit about the, the sort of the the major positions because there are, there are a variety of different positions that people hold uh, on the question that re- that evangelical people hold on the question of slavery, and I mean three the three sort of main positions that you outline in the book are abolitionist, gradual emancipationist, and pro-slavery positions. I wonder if you could explain what the people espousing each of these positions actually held, you know, what their biblical sanction was, as they saw it, and what role theology played in the shaping of each of those um, important positions.
1: Sure, yeah. So so the, the pro-slavery and gradual emancipationist positions um, are both, conservative in uh, their approach to the Bible. They, they um, empl- employ a very similar um, hermeneutic, a similar, in other words, method of interpretation of the text, uh, which uh, is very commonsensical. It's very straightforward. It's very informed by um, sort of the Scottish Enlightenment in terms of its approach to the text. And their reading of that text emphasizes that the text can be read plainly literally can be understood by anybody who picks it up and when you read the bible that way you see lots of slavery in it as was explaining a minute ago and you say slavery's all over the place and i don't see a lot of uh language in here that sort of um you know condemns condemns slavery in any way i mean there'll be one of the famous sort of texts uh that that people think challenges slavery is uh in the writings of uh Paul, Galatians uh, chapter three, verse 28, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, pro-slavery individuals, they, they look at that and they say, uh, right, in Christ. <laughs> but in the world, <laughs> there are all these right. other distinctions. So it's okay to have you know, uh, enslaved peoples be members of your churches. You, you would want that. Uh, you want to have a kind of missions to the slaves uh, because – sort of God has called for that. In this sort of theological reading, gradual emancipationists uh, would say, you know, we look around the world, uh, we look around, or at least, you know, the American context, and we see a lot of slavery, and we don't like it. Uh, It's clearly abusive. It clearly destroys family ties. The Bible kind of has an idea of slavery, particularly in the Mosaic Code, that, you know, slaves are to be set free, uh, in the Jubilee every seven years, Mm -hmm. uh, debts are to be forgiven. That doesn't happen in America. Uh, you're not supposed to separate families because family is also a God given institution. Well, that doesn't happen in America. I mean, the slave trade is profound. I mean, uh, by the time you get to the late antebellum period in places like Virginia one in three, uh, you know, slaves is being sold off. So this is, this is, you know, this is a profound destroyer of families. Uh, in the biblical accounts, it looks like, you know, slavery um, encourages slaves to be members of communities. In one of the famous sort of Pauline letters, uh, the letter to Philemon, Paul sort of instructs um, this enslaved man, Onesimus, to return to his condition of bondage. Um, who's a, who's a, he's a sort of fugitive slave. He's instructed to con- return to his condition of bondage. But Paul is also instructing Philemon to sort of accept him as uh, an equal in the community, and all these other kinds of things. Gradual emancipationists say we can't really get around the text, the biblical text. We can't really argue that slavery is not ordained by God. Clearly slavery is ordained by God. But perhaps American slavery is not ordained by God. Perhaps what we have on the ground here is really problematic. And, and we need to find some way of working around that. What that means is that pro-slavery and gradual emancipationists um, – believers believe essentially the same things about the Bible, but their application of what the Bible says is going to be different. The third position, abolitionists, they go completely in a different direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they say, you know, all those things that the gradual emancipationists say about, you know, slavery on the ground in America. Right. And and look, there's nobody in their right mind, abolitionists will say, that thinks slavery in any way could possibly be just, could possibly be humane. And they 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 especially there there are all kinds of you know different perspectives on the abolitionist spectrum. Everything from a kind of radical skepticism uh, about the Bible, which would be espoused by someone like William Lloyd Garrison, mm-hmm. a very famous abolitionist from Boston, to a, a much more kind of um, you know respectful position about the Bible. Certainly John G. Fee, who appears in my book, espouses this. But they're going to come at it from a very different kind of hermeneutical approach than. Um, either pro-slavery or gradual emancipationists. In fact, uh, African-American abolitionists uh, inside and outside Kentucky, abolitionists um, elsewhere, you know, many of whom are very proud to call themselves sort of evangelicals, will say, that may be what the Bible says, but we need a different reading. Uh, We need a different teaching. We need to interpret this text in a very different kind of way because, you know... (laughs) <laughs> a straightforward reading of the Bible is giving us a society that is profoundly unjust, and so you get you get kind of this collision of these three different positions that that all kind of come together in this uh, in this mid nineteenth century period.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's just it's really really just fascinating. Um, and speaking of collisions, uh, I wanted to ask you next about the in the second chapter of your book. I think it's called Heresy and Schism, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. You discuss the years between 1836 and 1845 when, and I remember this from my undergraduate days and I was very proud of myself, uh, when a series of schisms over slavery and abolition, precisely what you've been discussing, divided at a national level Presbyterians, Baptists, and Methodists. These three very prominent evangelical uh, uh, denominations, and Kentucky, of course, as you point out many times in your book, was home to a great many gradualist uh, emancipationists. I guess maybe maybe that's maybe I'm using incorrect terminology, and you can certainly co- feel free to correct. No, me. that's correct. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> um, but in that chapter, in that chapter two, you argue that gradualism. I mean, it sounds better than. Uh, pro-slavery, right, on its face, uh, or gradualist theology was pro-slavery theology. And I wonder if you could tell us what that means exactly and, and what kinds of evidence you marshaled to make that claim.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the the basic point there is that when it comes to their view of the Bible, when it comes to the way they think about truth christian truth in the world gradual emancipationists despite not liking american slavery uh essentially agree with the pro-slavery approach to the bible they agree with the kind of commonsensical uh literalist hermeneutic that the pro-slavery uh theologians will invoke what's interesting about that is that um these are people who for purposes of politics really try to do things that will end slavery. Now they're going to try and end slavery gradually, they're going to try to end slavery slowly but they are not insincere in their anti-slavery activism and and so um, you know they, they, <laughs> they, they find themselves in uh, the 1830s and 40s uh, in the midst of some seriously tumultuous uh, moments in national kind of Christian discussion over the slavery question. In uh, 1837, the Presbyterians split into new school and uh, old school factions. Here, slavery is really a secondary concern. Here, the split is not entirely sectional, which is to say it's not just along the Ohio River and Mason-Dixon line. It's not just – you get southern new school Presbyterians. uh, You have plenty uh, of northern old school Presbyterians. Their flagship seminary is Princeton Theological Seminary, arguably – uh, one of the two or three most influential seminaries um, in the long 19th century uh, in American history. Um, but slavery is a secondary calculation, a secondary concern. And Kentuckians are very influential uh, in in the denomination um, and, and in this split. And when they're talking, they're saying, you know, when this split happened – uh, this split between old school and new school. Yeah, a lot of theological questions uh, were in play that that were very important. But those theological questions that were in play, if you're not conservative, you might wind up an abolitionist. And we're not interested in having fellowship with those people. Mm. Well, in the 1840s, uh, the Methodist and Baptist have very serious schisms that have been building for several years uh, that are um, – these, unlike the Presbyterians, are clearly sectional in 1844 uh, and 1845 in the Methodist uh, Methodist Episcopal Church, which had been the largest uh, religious denomination in the country, some 1.1 million members. Um, the, the Baptists are more complicated because they don't have a denom- formal denominational structure. They come together for the purposes of raising money for missions, and their churches are autonomous. Mm-hmm. Uh, independently, uh, sort of independent churches amongst themselves, these two denominations, uh, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the American Baptist Home Mission Society will fracture, uh, because slavery will be introduced as a subject, um, in their sort of conventions that meet every several years. In both of these schisms, uh, particularly in the case of the Methodist schism, the Methodist schism, uh, happens, um, and there's an individual uh, by the name of uh, Henry B. Bascom. Uh, Bascom is the president of Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. Bascom's had a, had, had a very illustrious career. Uh, he was uh, the chaplain to the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, formerly because Henry Clay really liked him. He had been an agent of the American Colonization Society, which is a gradual emancipationist organization that wants to end slavery by deporting uh, the entire population of African-Americans, um, they don't get very far with this, but nonetheless, they uh, <laughs> for Bascom and many others, they think this is a way to end slavery in America. Bascom uh, remains an emancipationist after 1845. But in 1844, uh, Southern Methodists get very hacked off at Northern Methodists. And uh, they get hacked off uh, over a dispute over whether or not a bishop can be a slaveholder. And this has been raised because a Georgia bishop by the name of James O. Andrew um, had, had, had become a slaveholder. And he's sort of Northern Methodists want to censure this position. Bascom, the gradual emancipationist, for reasons of theology, writes uh, the minority protest and then writes a document um, in 1845 called Methodism and Slavery that argues that Northern Methodists, because of their anti-slavery position, have deviated from traditional Christian orthodoxy and that it would be right to create a Southern church. Uh, There are many such individuals who do similar things. Bascom's probably the most prominent of them. Uh, But but the long and the short of it is they're arguing here in these splits, uh, uh, you know, Many of us may not like American slavery as it exists. Many of us are gradual emancipationists, but for purposes of theology, we are very much aligned with the South. Mm. And Kentuckians are right at the center of that whole thing. They're right at the center of helping to create uh, these denominations. And so uh, back to sort of where we started with this conversation, they're defining (laughs) what that border, what that boundary means. Like Here, religiously, uh, the slavery question is going to take on a very different register than it's going to take north of the Ohio River
0: yeah right so well tell us this then if let's talk about politics if the if the gradual emancipationist folks and the pro-slavery folks were so similar or even you know um, in some ways inseparable in a religious uh, from a r- religious point of view what what do their politics look like
1: yeah this is this is uh, this is this is a great question I mean if uh, if they're so alike theologically, uh, what else is there to say? Uh, right. why, why don't they just sort of all become pro-slavery, and next thing you know they're wearing a Confederate gray? Well, the, 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 the reality is that, um, that gradual emancipationists have a very different view of what uh, should happen politically around the slavery question. And here again, Kentucky becomes a very central place. It's one of the latest places to debate um, having emancipation uh, as a kind of legal fact. Uh, in the United States, in 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 the North, uh, gradual emancipation begins in the era of the American Revolution. Uh, almost every northern state, including the the old Northwest territories, which become uh, Ohio, uh, Indiana, Illinois, eventually Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, there's slavery throughout the North uh, in the era of the American Revolution. But in the wake of the American Revolution, states develop laws that will slowly, gradually free the slaves that are in their midst so that slavery will die a very slow death. And this is the kind of dominant, normative way you end slavery in America up to the Civil War. This is what most people think, most whites anyway, think that the way to end slavery is. You do this gradually. You do it slow. You do it by law, by constitutional amendment. And Virginia entertains a debate like this in the early 1830s. Kentucky debates it in 1849. And uh, emancipationists in Kentucky, uh, many of whom are the state's most prominent uh, ministers, uh, put together an emancipation party. There's a canvas that starts taking place in 1847, 1848, and in 1849 there's going to be a convention where they draw up a constitution. Right. Uh, That's right. And th- this is this is going to be... You know, sort of the emancipationist moment to prove that Kentucky can gradually emancipate, that Kentucky is not like the Deep South. Uh, Henry Clay is behind this. Robert J. Breckinridge is behind this. Um, He becomes the kind of chair of of the Emancipation Party. Uh, (laughs) The long and the short of it is this position is seen as anathema to pro-slavery individuals, pro-slavery individuals in the Deep South, of course, but also in Kentucky. And when the chips are down, and the voters go uh, to the polls, they elect a slate uh, that is almost entirely pro-slavery. Um, maybe ten, uh, maybe twelve, maybe thirteen or fourteen percent go for emancipation. That's it. Uh, this is significant in the history of the American South. I mean, not a lot of other states uh, could claim emancipation adherence that high. Yeah. But but that's not very high. I mean, ten <laughs> yeah. percent is not a is not a workable. Uh, in any stretch of the imagination two years later the emancipationists try again in 1851 and get something like three percent of the vote it's uh and, and there it's not about constitution revision the constitution that comes in in 1850 uh strengthens the rights of slaveholders has no provisions for emancipation looks like uh lots of other kind of deep south state constitutions you would have and essentially ensures slavery's viability into the future so where people had been aligned on theology, these gradualist and pro-slavery believers, they are completely uh, at odds when it comes to politics. And, you know, really famous Southern politicians of this time period, like John C. Calhoun and James Henry Hammond from South Carolina, are both looking at the situation in Kentucky and looking at the gradual emancipationists and saying, you know, sure, they say they're with us when it comes to this theological question about the righteousness of slavery, but their politics show us something else. Their politics show us... That they're not to be trusted. That they're not really part of what we're trying to do down here with, you know, kind of slavery in the South.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So, okay, so you've given us a sense of the of the sort of um, the 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 unity amongst uh, various conservative Protestants uh, in theological terms, and then you've given us a sense of how divided these folks were at the very same time in terms of their politics. But what you show over the course of the book is that that, too, changes. In other words, the division between these two groups um, is not sustained. Uh, so what, what comes finally, or, or what, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a stupid question in a way, but what is the thing that comes to unify gradual emancipationists with pro-slavery believers?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that thing is, is, in the one hand, the Civil War. Right. Uh, but it's not the Civil War itself. It's, it's what comes as part of the Civil War. It's emancipation. Yes, the the, the Civil War. So the Civil War comes. And as I think probably a lot of people know, Kentucky stays in the Union. And that's a contested thing. There are uh, a minority of Confederate sympathizers. They attempt to form a Confederate government in Russellville, Kentucky. Uh, But the long and the short of it is that most white Kentuckians seem to be on board with the Union. Overwhelmingly, (laughs) black Kentuckians are definitely on board with the Union. Yes, because the Union uh, means liberation. Now there's a lot of really important, uh, research that I draw upon that talks about what that process of emancipation looked like. I mean, one of the great things that's gone on in sort of civil war era studies in the last generation or so is to show that emancipation is a process, not an event. And it's a process that takes place, uh, with enslaved peoples themselves rising up and sort of fleeing to, um, union army camps, uh, looking for sort of protection, Right. And 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 so um, in Kentucky, one of the biggest of these camps is in central uh, Kentucky, uh, Jessamine County. Uh, It's in uh, uh, Camp Nelson, uh, which is not too far um, today uh, uh, from uh, from uh, Lexington and, uh, you know, Richmond and and where Berea College ultimately is. But it's in the sort of center part of the state. Some 13,000 enslaved peoples will find freedom there over the course of the war. Uh, this is no sort of bed of roses path to freedom. I mean, there are cases of, uh, very significant cases, um, of enslaved peoples sort of being left out in, in, in the cold and, and freezing to death, dying of exposure, disease. I mean, all kinds of, uh, nasty things are happening. Um, but the long and the short of it is they're not acting as slaves. And, and that's, that's really the, the critical piece for this question about uh, what unites pro-slavery theological conservatives with gradualists uh, gradual emancipationists in the course of the war, um, Kentucky will end up sending nearly twenty four thousand uh, men to fight for the union African American men to fight for the Union. This number is more than ten percent of all blacks who serve uh, in the Union army and navy wow uh, but it's it's what uh, what's most staggering about it is that it is uh, 57% of all military age black men in Kentucky. And that 57% dwarfs, uh, the African American contribution from any other state. And the key reason why you see over 50% of military age men signing up for the union in Kentucky is because it is the only path to freedom in Kentucky. Yes, K- Kentucky is, uh, A union slave state, which means that when the Emancipation Proclamation comes down, it does not apply. Uh, It means that when uh, Abraham Lincoln signs orders allowing for the recruitment of black troops, Kentucky is going to be exempted initially because uh, unionist slaveholders are sort of politically putting the screws to Lincoln and uh, saying, hey, (laughs) Uh, remember us? We're loyal here. Uh, we, we, we're not part of this rebellion, uh, which is how Lincoln always thinks of uh, the Civil War or thinks of the Confederate cause. And, you know, we here are the loyal slaveholders of Kentucky, and we're not part of this. Well, in 1864, Kentucky fails to meet its quota of, of sort of required troops uh, for the Union war effort. And Lincoln says, look, uh, you have a mass amount of, of sort of manpower in the form of your African American population, and we're gonna start enlisting African Americans. What all this means is that this whole kind of argument about God's design, uh, gradual emancipation, uh, you know, God's design for slavery, gradual emancipation must come slowly, uh, with black removal, all these kinds of things, all of a sudden you have this civil war where to fight that civil war on the cause of the Union, enslaved uh, peoples or formerly enslaved peoples are marching to Union lines saying, I will take a gun and I will enlist to fight for the Union cause in a war to overthrow slavery. I mean, this becomes all too much. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is where you know, pro-slavery and gradualists just sort of come back together and, and you know, the long and the short of it is just say, this isn't what we had in mind. I mean, whatever we had in mind about American slavery and its gradual end, this is not it. And as as, as much as uh sort of we, we know that emancipation uh was a process, not an event, the reality is it comes through cataclysm, it comes through upheaval, it comes through civil war, and and gradual emancipationists by and large are not willing to go there and they are not willing to accept the emancipation as consequence of the civil war.
0: Yeah, that is just fascinating. And once again it seems like the, it makes it makes Kentucky's history seem so um, particularly fascinating in this era because it it just doesn't um, it doesn't fit any of the I mean now again I'm speaking as someone who's who's much uh, less steeped in these issues than you are obviously but uh, it, it, it it doesn't fit into the um, what I sort of assumed happened which was that Reconstruction somehow also took place in Kentucky but. It doesn't. Reconstruction doesn't take place in Kentucky. Um, and on, on that note, I'll ask you this this next question, uh, just to kind of follow up on that thought. Kentucky, in a sense, I mean, this is, to me, I have to say for myself, um, the, the, one of the most fascinating aspects of the book comes later, after you've 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 kind of warmed us up with all of these fascinating topics that we've been discussing so far, and you've you've taken us through the various arguments about religion, about theology, about politics, about the war about emancipation and its effects, its particular effects in Kentucky uh, and the particular way in which it unfolded in Kentucky. And then this is the real, this is what what really sealed it for me. Kentucky, in a sense, becomes Confederate, uh, you argue, after the fact. Um, You say that without serving the Confederacy, I'm quoting from the book now, without serving the Confederacy, Kentucky joined the Redemption Um, And you also write that the Civil War destroyed slavery, but it did not destroy the faith that sustained slavery. And those are kind of linked quotes in my mind. So I wonder if you could explain what you mean uh, by that and and explain to us how uh, Reconstruction doesn't take place in Kentucky and what happens instead. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, Kentucky, so because Kentucky's unionist, Kentucky is really never forced to do um, any of the things that uh, the, the states of the Confederacy are forced to do to rejoin the Union. Uh, part of that includes uh, – I should back up and say Reconstruction is attempted in Kentucky. I mean there, there, there is an attempt to do something like what we think of as Reconstruction, which is to say uh, the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, who is tasked with the, uh, the redistribution of abandoned lands, which is tasked with adjudicating um, over you know, contract disputes between freed people – and um, landowners, it's often black-white relations there. Uh, it's tasked with you know medical care and broad relief, sometimes involved with education. The Freedmen's Bureau is operating in Kentucky. Now, white Kentuckians, they're very upset about this. I mean, they're basically saying, we have no reason. I mean, white Southerners more generally kind of don't like the Freedmen's Bureau because uh, it's seen by many of them as a kind of... Um, you know political arm of emancipation republic emancipationist republicanism or military arm i should say of of a political position mm. but but in in so in kentucky it's it's sort of there but when it comes to the politics uh kentucky is not forced to enfranchise african americans kentucky is uh, not forced to disfranchise uh confederate sympathizers mm-hmm. uh kentucky <laughs> is uh not <laughs> forced to do all kinds of political things that would change the political landscape uh, of Kentucky. So very quickly, uh, th- there, is, there is a disfranchisement bill that, for, for Confederates that uh, the state legislature had passed at the start of the Civil War. Uh, basically, uh, right after the war in late 1865, early 1866, the legislature takes that off the books, and immediately a whole slate of ex-Confederates get elected, as part of uh, uh what becomes a white de- basically an all white democratic party uh because african americans are not uh enfranchised in kentucky uh there is no kind of base for a republican party to operate like you would see in other places uh, mississippi south carolina this sort of thing um and so the kind of politics of reconstruction that we tend to think of don't happen in kentucky and Kentucky becomes basically, without having fought for the Confederacy, the most unreconstructed state. <laughs> because starting in late 1865, they immediately start doing what we associate with a later period uh, in Reconstruction, what we call redemption, uh, where they basically restore uh, white home rule. Uh, so-called, uh, where they do all kinds of things to make it really hard for freed people to uh, operate in society. There's all kinds of cases, the Freedmen's Bureau reports of violence against African-Americans and uh, whites who sympathize with them. And, and and the long the long and the short of it is that, I mean, as soon as the war is over, uh, Kentucky has to, uh, Kentucky finds itself doing things that the ex-Confederate South will be doing, but before <laughs> that happens, happens elsewhere. The 14th Amendment, which... Uh, Historians love to show how complicated it is, but, but the long and the short of it, it where the 14th Amendment sort of um, gives rise to multiracial birthright citizenship, the 15th Amendment uh, allows for the enfranchisement of, uh, you know, uh, men regardless of race in the United States. One of the ironies of the 15th Amendment when it comes down is that uh, almost every uh, former slave state has a state constitution that has that provision, that has African American male suffrage. Uh, and it's the northern states that don't have it. Well, Kentucky is like the last. Kentucky doesn't even ratify any of these amendments. They shoot them all down. And so when they're forced, when they're forced to accept them by law, of course they sort of begrudgingly do. But um, yeah, they don't vote for them, and you know the state becomes completely uh, under the sway of a white Democratic Party, and it continues that way uh, really for the next generation plus. I mean, it, it, it takes a very long time for you to see cracks in that in that foundation.
0: Yeah, very fascinating. I have to say, it's just a uh, it's a really it's a really good read. It's a beautifully written book, and I encourage lots of people to go and read it. Um, we're kind of I'm, I feel like we're impinging a bit on your time at this point, and maybe we need to start just to wrap things up. We've 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 taken up a lot of your time, and you've been very generous with us, Luke. And I um, I wonder if you just mind answering one 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 final question, uh, which is basically. Everyone will be interested to know know what you're working on now. Sure. Can you tell us?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, of course. So one of the things that um, the book shows where it ends, where religion, race, and the making of Confederate Kentucky ends, is it ends with uh, all these sort of white Southern denominations uh, arguing into the 1870s and 80s that God has ordained slavery, that slavery was right. And that's why, going back to the 1830s and 40s, we will not reunite. This is why uh, we will not have fellowship with northern abolitionist heretics uh, for, for Christian right. purposes. Right. And, and, you know, that's a nice place to uh, end a monograph because monographs need to end and not become life works. <laughs> uh, but, but really what I want to do is run that out um, in, in, in the next project. I'm kicking around a, uh, a book called The Pro-Slavery Origins of American Fundamentalism. And it sort of argues that once you have the death of American slavery, uh, that what remained unchallenged was the theology, as, as you quoted a minute ago, the theology that gave life to the defense of slavery. And that theology is never really um, – it never really goes away. Uh, it hangs around. Uh, it comes on in kind of new form and, and not necessarily around the slavery question per se but that the residue of the debates over slavery – give life to uh, debates that will be seen in the next generation over what gets called fundamentalism and modernism and sort of the debates between more conservative Protestants and uh, Protestant liberals. So that uh, different from the way we tend to think of American religious history, where in the 19th century there's this debate that leads to fundamentalism and modernism and the debate hinges on questions about, uh, you know, Darwin's theories um, about human origins. Or where the debate turns on new innovations coming out of Germany uh, dealing with, uh, you know, higher criticism of uh, the biblical text and, you know, who wrote the biblical text. Uh, Questions over immigration and the challenge that happens to uh, Protestant um, hegemony in the United States because in the late 19th century we see, um, you know, immigrants from all over the place who are bringing uh, particularly Judaism and Catholicism in, in sort of rising numbers to, to the United States scenes. And and, and America becomes this place that's, uh, you know, Protestant Catholic Jew, as, as we kind of talk about it in, in, in the early 20th century. What I want to say is, like, not that all of those things are wrong, but that we should think very seriously about the role of the theological debate over slavery and what happens uh, coming out of the Civil War, so that the Civil War is very much— Uh, at the center of American religious history. And so I think sort of one way to get at that is to think more about what the long life of pro-slavery religion means and what it did.
0: Really interesting. I think a lot of people will be interested to read that book, Luke. So I think um, maybe we should let you go now, and it's been a deep pleasure. It really has. Uh, the author's name is Luke E. Harlow. He is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. His book is called Religion, Race, and the Making of Confederate Kentucky, 1830 to 1880. It has just appeared with Cambridge University Press. I, I urge you to read it. And Luke, thanks so much for your time. We have really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.